0: Hi, this is uh, John Reed, trying to overcome a couple of technical difficulties here uh, and have a web-based hangout with uh, Derek Laronka. We're going to talk about uh, BI strategies. I hope you like my picture right now. I, I do. I mean, as long as I'm not the one getting knocked out, I'm fine. Hey, as long as the audio is fine, uh, if peeps have to look at our pictures sometimes, then that, they'd tough it out. So we're in the evening. We have the ambient lighting, as you can see, and I'm with Derek LaRocca. You can see that. That's his Twitter handle, and we're going to do some BI shop talk today. Uh, Derek works for uh, an SAP customer in the BI area, we're going to talk about changes in BI and sort of transitioning from reporting-type BI to the more advanced BI that's got everyone all worked up, the sex appeal BI, right? See if it really matters. It's the Cinemax of BI. Right. This is going to be the Cinemax BI tonight, so I hope you enjoy it. It's, it's pretty safe for work, but you, know, you might want to be a little careful if you're watching this at work. And, and Derek, I want to talk about your own career transition because you've been a business object professional, but you're now uh, transitioning to more of an architectural role, so I want to get into that a little bit as well. So basically the subject is disruptive change in BI.
1: What I, do you think? Can we handle that? I think we can handle that. I think it's a good topic because the title says it all.
0: All right, well let's let's start with with this thing around, you know, you 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 work for uh, a large Fortune 100 company in the uh, insurance industry. Are we allowed to say that? I yes, we so. are. Insurance I mean, and
1: Managed Care, we can go that far. Okay, cool. Cuz I not I'm not officially speaking for that company. I could just right. say that. Uh, yeah. so it's it's one of the oldest in the in the business. It's definitely to give a little more of a hook and reel in it's definitely one of the ones that you know is out there I work for one of the companies that are out there with the affordable care act talking our CEOs out there talking a lot about it so we're we're in the midst of a transition internally because of the external pressures and then you've got you know as an older company you've got a lot of legacy systems and legacy uh Applications as well as merger and acquisition applications all coming together trying to figure out uh, how to make the business work on top of all the external changes and the changing dynamics of BI into analytics, for lack of a better term. You've got, you know, that type of conundrum of how do you keep the current going with the new features coming down and new applications and new data. So it's, it's definitely, you know, a crucial atmosphere right now figuring out where things are going and what horse to tie your cart to. Now, Tell me about
0: those external pressures because I think we're all familiar with that in our own industries like I'm, I'm largely in, in media and, and services which are two industries that are highly disrupted right <laughs> now. Um, it, are you finding that the pressures that are coming are some of them unique to insurance and some of them broader like what kinds of pressures are forcing change?
1: Well, you've got the pressure of, uh, you know, generally, in my opinion, the the scope of where healthcare is going. Going from, you know, you've got one camp pushing single payer, you've got one camp pushing uh, the continuation of the managed care model, and then you've got kind of Affordable Care Act in the middle doing its thing. So you've got that pressure of how do you stay relevant in business with all these other external pressures coming down, which then shakes up how people handle their information. If you think about it, it's one thing for companies to say, I'm gonna move my business to the cloud. Uh, That's fine, you can have your data in the cloud, but in a company such as mine, the cloud carries its own set of risks. And and it's not as much that it's a risk of the data loss and the personal health information and the government scrutiny of it, it's the public face of it. It's my data's in the cloud, You, you put my lab test in the cloud, like, is there nowadays? Is there really a difference from having your lab result in, you know, my system or in AWS my system that I own too? Technically, there's not a whole lot of difference, but publicly, there's a lot of difference, and that makes a difference. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's those pressures when they when they boil down into uh, how people inside the company who are running the businesses are trying to get that data, access that data, analyze that data. It it circles back to a fundamental change of how we're looking at BI in general. Mm. And is is the insurance
0: industry also facing a lot of challenges around I know on the finance side, I know that there's a lot of consolidation issues and then there then there's consumers that want more choice but they're putting a lot of price pressure as well. Are those the kinds of things that you're dealing with?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean if you think about it, you know, you've got the pressure of think about Availability to affordability to uh, what your particular company and/or firm is willing to pay towards your cost, and then you have to bear the the change of that, and then that cost structure and medical cost ratio, you know, obviously, you know, dictates how much profit my company makes, and then therefore that changes how many employees we have and what our outsourcing, insourcing ratio is, and all that other fun stuff that you know is to say, we're going to raise your rate or not raise your rate. And then your employer is going to say, we're going to raise it or we're not going to raise it.
0: So do you, think, do you think your BI systems and BI in general is helping to solve these problems, or is the whole point that BI needs to be retooled in a way that helps business users and makes is more sort of agile, if you will, so it can help solve these problems, or is it actually solving them now?
1: I think in the current stage of where we're at, in s- – it currently is helping and what it's doing is at, at a reporting level it's coming up and saying these are the numbers i think the future of where bi is at my firm and maybe other firms as well the industry in general it's not just this these are the numbers and it's going to be these are the numbers and these are the anticipated you can do you know you've got the actuaries and everybody those those smart people who are doing their thing for the rates i think that that type of data logic and data analysis is eventually going to move out of that realm and into every day in my industry and the fact that everyone's going to need to figure out how to do progressions and how to do things like, you know, and cost runs and stuff like that in order to accurately forecast things. You know, obviously the the call taker who's answering your question about something that you called on the back of the card isn't going to need to run that. But the analyst for the plan sponsor is going to hopefully one day be able to, get out of the mode of I'm going to run a report and look at something to I've got access to the data, I'm going to run my own analysis. And I think we're at that shift now.
0: Yeah, and, and you and I, we go to these shows that are, shall we say, kind of buzzword heavy. Just a little bit. Is that fair? <laughs> and and we, we hear a whole lot about what I might call the sexy side of BI, everything from like <laughs> self-service, a little bit of BI in the cloud, though that's early. We hear a lot about big data, we're hearing a fair amount about predictive. Uh, we hear a little bit of talk about ROI in the middle of all that. We hear mobility these days, which gets into bring your own device. What kind of stuff amongst all that is any of that stick to the wall, or do you come home and you're like, what the heck, how does that even relate to my project's concerns right now?
1: I think in my new role, they all relate. Because as I moved out of an operational role into an architecture role, I'm seeing that now those are all functional and all relational. The question is how does the – and I think any large enterprise has the same problem. How do you shift that paradigm without a clutch as Dilbert put it? How, how do you, you know, go from fifth, you know, first gear to fifth without pressing the clutch? How, and it's the fact that you know, mobility is great. But – how is mobility really working for the data analyst who has a desktop computer? Right. Because you, you're not going to have those kinds of applications on there. Or the executive who says, "I'd like to see this report on the mobile or you know mobile, but they don't have a corporate mobile device or their personal mobile device isn't provisioned with a VPN or something else to see the corporate data, which means what you have to set up a login and maybe a token base off which might work, but then you need to go through the machinations of big corporate enterprise to get that to work. So I think that as big corporations see that, just like the PC was 30 years ago, uh, I think in 30 years we're going to be wondering what took us so long to allow for seamless you know, desktop to mobile to cloud, uh, mm. you know, Cons, you know, cons, consumption of that data, you know, of that report, of that analytic. Yeah, before we started formally
0: taping, you and I were talking about this and talking about this this example of visualization, right? So visualization is very sexy right now, and and what you were saying is for your users, visualization. It's not like they don't want it, but they want to be able to drive into data for the most part. They they don't just want something served up to them that they can't really query into so is that an example of where you have to dig deeper than like the hype around something and figure out what your users really want and- it, well exactly
1: John I think it, it, it's, it's a two pronged problem uh, problem one is that how do you access the data You know, right now the, those folks are getting their data either they're pulling the data out themselves and they're doing analysis locally or they're using reporting you know, generic reporting to go and query against the data and bring back numbers to then do something else with uh and as the data grows on the relational systems, it gets slower and slower and runtimes get longer and you can only speed that stuff up so much. I mean how you know when you're trying to pull and query a data highly optimized you know table that's you know fifty billion rows long, it's gonna take a while. But you know, then you have these sexy buzzwords of analytics and the sexy buzzwords of visualization and you know the tag clouds and all the stuff out there that people are like, I want that. Okay, I bought the product. Okay, but I'm going to put it on this 50 billion row table. Wait, it's – what? That's never going to – why is it taking so long? And you sit there and you roll your head and go, well, that's because you know, you're trying to do this really advanced analytic on a 50 billion row table. How you know, That's where that big data and that speed may come into play. It's, it's that progression of getting you – know, there's always going to be – for transnational reporting, there's always going to be a need for enterprise-level information. But does everyone really always need access to that at that table? You know, we're going back to the days of data mart and data warehousing. You know, pull out everything got put into the warehouse, and then you put the marts on top of it. And then, you know, now the marts are now warehouse-sized. <laughs> and your warehouse is now, you know, a warehouse cluster, for lack of a better term. So it's moving that data out of that again. Or if you're not going to move it, how do you make it faster? Right. And that's where those buzzwords of, you know, the SAP's Hanas and IBM's Blues of the Worlds of we'll just take your data and stick it in memory and you know make it columnar, it's going to be faster that solves part of the problem but if, you know, speed to data but then if you're not going to anal- change the way you're analyzing it or right. the tools you're using to analyze it, are you really just solving a problem or making your current problem just faster you know, it's like putting better tires on a sports car Yeah. or a monster truck
0: Or as I say, driving into the wall faster just makes the casualties of the accident increase.
1: Um, (laughs) The question becomes, do you have a seatbelt or a seatbelt and an airbag? Yeah. So do you have an approach
0: in your company that makes sure that when you pursue one of these newfangled BI projects that it is relevant to your users? Are they involved in the process in some way? I mean, I know the, the buzzword is like agile or design thinking or something. Do you have something like that that makes you feel more confident?
1: Yes, I could say that, you know, <laughs> like still that. A qualified. Yes, qualified. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're slowly getting and just like most large enterprises, you know, you've got certifications to live up to. And, you know, we're still a full waterfall CMMI organization. But the business is saying, you know, that worked great for the last 15 years. But now we want to get into something where we give you something small. You do it. You know, we want to move into something agile, or they want to get involved in design thinking. The question becomes then, you know, where where does it make sense to pick apart the projects? And I know what we're pushing in our team is that BI and analytics makes sense to be agile. There's no need for a full CMMI level three waterfall methodology to change the logo on a Crystal report. Uh, <laughs> or you know or there's really no need for that for when you're working with the business to design a semantic layer or create a new data set off off an existing data set that's where an agile or design thinking methodology Works much better with these types of tools because you're able to sit there one on one or team in team figure out where your gaps are, what you need, what you need to build in, as opposed to all right, here's a spec document, we're going to do this, and then we have a review, and then we're going to review the review, and then you know we have to budget project hours and all that stuff. For BI and analytics, I don't think I think we the tools and the data have moved past that into really requiring more agile thinking, design thinking methodology of working together. Otherwise, you're it really becomes bogged down into, all right, we need to change the font. Well, we got to submit a change request, and, you know, we need to have a work product inspection and three QA guys and all this for changing the font or logo on a report or changing, you know, a minor data set thing that the data's already there. We're just adding it into semantic layer. So I think that's a shift in our industry in general. And I think these tools and the way we're doing it with this, you know, the way the vendors are selling with speed and everything else, I think they are also kind of pushing businesses and enterprises into that.
0: Yeah, and you had described your, your shop as going through a journey from kind of a classic Crystal re, Reports reporting shop from a BI perspective into something much more advanced analytics oriented. How, how does one make that journey?
1: Very slowly. <laughs> uh, and that's just because – Obviously, of a, a size of a company at an enterprise level, you've got you know, your corporate you know, methodologies and bureaucracies and approvals and stuff. But it's more than that. It's a business driving things. It's a business seeing things and saying, look, it's like we want to keep our green bar reporting. We want to keep our ad hoc reporting, like our web intelligence. They do this certain job really, really well. If you can make them faster, we want that. You know, <laughs> Obviously, business will never turn down speed. Uh, and there's always gonna be a subset of users, like I said earlier, you know, the, the the people who take your phone call, the people who are just analyzing stuff at a desktop. Those folks having things faster, the ROI there is more productivity. But you know, do they really need an iPad with mobile BI on it? Probably not. Yeah. But your executives who are and your you know consultants and other folks who are out there who need that more thoughtful speed, those are driving and Creating a a requirement for a shift of how do we manage both now used to be I think that I'm hoping the days of this is where it is just deal with it to let's figure out how to partner are coming and I think the other ones are ending and I can only hope.
0: Yeah, When when you talk about going slowly towards this transformation that makes sense given big companies and all that but I think there's two ways of going slowly, right? The classic enterprise way of going slowly is to take on an enti- a huge, enormous multi-year project and and kind of creep your way forward, right? Another model for going slowly is to pick one thing and, like, like you said, like maybe executives on iPads, right, where you have a clear use case for how they're going to use it um, or shop floor um, reporting where they never had access to that data handheld before. Is that the kind of stuff you're doing where you're kind of picking certain certain things and pilot project and things like that or how does it or you roll it out one division at a time or how, how does it work
1: i think that's how you have to do it to be honest mm-hmm. you part of my phone in the background <laughs> i think that's how you have to do it because i think that's how you get buy-in i think that it's those smaller successes that drive the bigger enterprise project i mean mm-hmm. we're not a we're not an erp shop in the sense of a classic erp shop we're not making widgets you know yeah. you know my industry yeah we have our own enterprise processes, but they're all homegrown. You know, we're still running big iron and those things like that, right? So at the end of the day, though, what you've got is business units and business teams coming to say, "I need. I think this is going to increase my productivity. I think that you know this analyzing the data this way is going to make us money. And I think that is where that grassroots of people saying that we need this change is happening. And believe it or not, I still think the old school method of ex-business head says, I have this project money and I want this, It's still very much alive, <laughs> I'm sure, mm-hmm. at every firm. You know, this this vice president wants this type of software and has the holds the purse strings for last of purse strings.
0: You right. Know? We should you have know. clarified to our listeners when I said you guys were an SAP customer that you're an SAP Business Objects customer, not an SAP ERP customer. So for what that's worth, <laughs> duly noted... Know, it, <laughs>
1: And I think it's funny that uh, we, we say that, and it's a, and it's the truth because as SAP is buying these, they have bought business objects, you know, the KXENs. You know, as companies like that grow, you've got the different uh, use cases and different types of customers now. You know, the days of you know my company being a huge shop compared to the Cokes and Pepsi's of the world that SAP runs is probably you know, obviously things have shifted. Right. But at the end of the day, a customer is a customer and how companies like SAP and, you know, for let's say Salesforce with their purchases are handling that integration, it's really what's going to drive the next five to ten years. You know, I think that as these companies, you know, Salesforce and Kate workday as they're buying other little guys, or SAP who's buying bigger little guys (laughs) <laughs> the question becomes, how do they integrate those tools in successfully and not really lose those current customers to say, you know what, you, you forgot about me, I'm going to go and buy product X because, you know, analytics is analytics or, you know, talent management, talent management. Yeah. Now, SAP's
0: been pushing uh, predictive analytics quite a bit, and it's easy to understand from a business perspective why they would do that, right? Because predictive starts to get pretty exciting when you start thinking about anticipating risks before they happen and minimizing them as opposed to
1: getting spanked by them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there's money to be made in that too. Uh, you have your large predictive vendors, but what's shaking up the predictive industry, it seems are the smaller vendors and, uh, those types of purchases, once again, are you're going to decide the future of those big companies, you know, Right. How do you integrate them? how do you sell them? How do you do it? you know it's like, all right, you know you bought business objects and now you're making all the changes here in version four for ERP customers 4.1 has got and or feature pack three before before 4.1 had more for you know the non-ERP customers. The regular standard relational. and the message from SAP is always you know we're not losing we're not losing the focus on the other customer. you know and that's you know still been the case to a point. Uh, and I would think that maybe the success factor folks might say that to a, a little bit as well. You know, it's the fact that as these companies are buying these things, and in this case of you know our case, we've got a suite here. The question becomes, do we keep that suite, or do we add on? And I think that's the big thing that a lot of the bigger vendors, SAPs and you know, Oracles of the world, are not keen to hear is that I'm going to keep your product, I'm going to continue to buy it, but I'm also going to try, you know something else. You know what? Because these guys might have a jump on you because they were smaller and were under the radar, and they play nice with my, you know, non-SAP data. Okay. You know, I'm not saying I'm not going to buy your product. I'm just going to say, let me go and talk to here without pressuring me about buying your current product. <laughs> right.
0: And and it's I think it's interesting because that speaks to your career transition as well, right? Because, you know, moving from being kind of a tools expert in business objects, to being an architecture guy who can kind of speak to weighing the pros and cons of different approaches and yes different vendor solutions and you look at it and you're like that's where landscapes are headed right where companies want to be able to plug and play uh, to get where they want to go without necessarily saying well because you double down on our product in the past you must use this in the future.
1: And yes, and I, but it's funny that you know we, we we say that because we also always know that there's always that behind the scene pressure of over here that I don't know, but it's 17 levels up saying that all right this person buys a lot of this so we're gonna buy this, right? You know that always comes into play at any company, but I think that I totally agree with you in the fact that as people move on and things become plug and play, it's gonna be a challenge, and the winner will be who can plug and play with the most. Mm-hmm. You know, I can play with Hadoop, I, I've got R integration, you know, I want open source, but I also am locked into my, you know, uh, Teradata and natiza you know, for these silos over here. So, whichever one can play with all of them, and can play with them, maybe not at a native level, but at a, the next level up from pure native, I think that is where things are going, because... Think about device agnosticity for lack of a better term. You know, I've got an Android tablet and I've got an iPad. You know, both markets have got the have got an app for me to get to my dashboard, for lack of a better term. Or to my to my visualization, to my analytic. At this point, it doesn't matter where it's running. It's the fact that the software is running it and it's right. available. I think that type of you know agnosticity, I love to use the word platform agnostic when I'm talking with SAP. Uh, that type of agnosticity really is going to decide where people's loyalties and therefore money lie.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are you taking it upon yourself as as an architect to better understand these broader trends and vendors as well? Or are you feeling that that's important to to BI professionals like yourself? Or I,
1: Well, I think as a BI professional, I think we're all experts in certain tools. I mean for me, it was business objects and still am to a point. It's the point of you may not may not be an expert in Cognos but knowing what Cognos can do and knowing what the differences are mm-hmm. that if for some reason management says we're buying Cognos now you at least know what it is you've heard of it and staying current allows you as a BI professional to say all right I knew I've heard of them I know where they're coming you know I've seen the blogs I've read the snippets I read the analyst feeds you know, those types of things to weigh. All right, well, we know why management might have done it this way. Okay, well, this is what the holy grail has, you know, the, the ivory tower has decided on high. We're the ones in the trenches that are going to implement it. If you're not staying current, you're you're going to get pigeonholed. And next thing you know, when that product, you know, the new product comes in and your product, you know, is down to three users, they're going to wonder why are you still there.
0: Right, yeah. I want to get back to Predictive for just a sec because I don't want to miss this opportunity because you guys you guys go f- fairly way back with Predictive, right? Because you told me you were a, a SaaS shop from the old school, which is SAS SAS, not Software as a Service SaaS. Um, <laughs> so why do you think Predictive is suddenly gaining so much sort of market attention and momentum? Have, do you think there's something we've turned a corner with what we can do? And if so, why?
1: Uh, I think we have turned the corner. I think, believe it or not, I think the corner is the whole big data movement. I think it's the fact that with people saying that, you know, I can now have millions and billions and trillions of rows wherever it is, if it's Hadoop, if it's Hana, if it's blue, if it's whatever, that I don't longer have to worry about things running for six and a half hours. I can now do those you know, those analyses and those predictions and those algorithms in one third or one quarter the time of what I used to do, I think really that is open things up. You know, it's the fact that I no longer, you know, if you architect it right and you build it out right, I no longer have to wait an hour for a query to come back and it's come back in a matter of seconds completely shifts the workload and what the possibility of things that can be done. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I really think that, you know, the harping of that by IBM and SAPs and Oracles of the world is a good thing. Uh, It's the delivery of the solutions is always the fun part to see All right, who is where and who should I use.
0: (laughs) Do you think the increased availability of new sources of information uh, in terms of feeds and sort of the API economy do you think that's contributed as well because you think about things like well now I can pull in a feed for weather patterns that might influence demographic trends or uh, pull in real estate uh, information that might impact, you know, where people might be moving. And and is that kind of stuff like part of the equation too, like new sources of data? Yeah. You,
1: know you know what? Totally. 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 And think about uh, an example, I think it was just last year, where we had a giant sock sell off when the AP's Twitter feed got hacked. Because the algorithms were there that they saw that there was an attack on the White House or on the president. Those words in an algorithm somewhere triggered an automatic sale and an automatic dip in the market. You know, before, the, before the times of big data and uh, – and I use that term loosely. You know, before the yeah. times of you know, fast response or big, that type of thing, that really wouldn't have been possible. So in, at the speed that fake tweet got out there. That same speed impacted the algorithms to have a massive sell-off. Yeah. Have so, you thought? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was
0: just curious if you've thought about, uh, are there scenarios in your industry that you're starting to think about as far as things you guys could do differently?
1: Oh well, absolutely. If you think about it, you know, the in our industry. It obviously is more cost effective for people to be healthy as opposed to not be healthy. You know we've been doing disease management that's where I started my my career was in disease management and in uh informatics in the analyzing of the health data to help with predict and work with people to have a healthier lifestyle. I might not personally be living it, but hey uh, <laughs> what you're expert in it, that's all that matters right exactly. I could tell you yeah. that you know <laughs> no we won't go there <laughs> but if you think about it, in my industry and in healthcare in general, that healthier lifestyle obviously saves you and your employer and the insurer and the entire system money. Uh, it's you know that mining of the data to figure out and predict whether or not someone might possibly be non-compliant to their meds. You know, a type one diabetic who hasn't filled their their, their insulin script in six months, either they're going somewhere off the record for it, or they don't have the money for it, and you know. And, uh, an outreach person can reach out and figure out do they need help in paying for their medicine because you want them – rather put out the cost of the medicine that keeps them in check than the hospital stays and the inevitable you know downfall of somebody's health when it comes to a right. disease like diabetes. So I think that as analytics speeds up and the data speeds up, what you've got is the chance to fundamentally shift – Kind of where things like that are predicted and where they're going. You know, I'm not saying we're going to get to the point where you know I've got for you know a certain level of claims and healthy and met- metabolic syndrome testing, and they're going to be able to predict that I'm going to have a heart attack in six months. But <laughs> will they? Yeah. You know, will we get to the point of knowing if people allow analysis to be done to figure out what you're more at risk for? Right. You know. Right. And you know what, I think at the end of the day, I think it's also the fact that all this big data is good, but at some point there's going to be a level of trust. And you know we have to overcome that, and I'm still not there yet. Do I trust the entire ecosystem with that type of detailed data? And you know what, we may not be there yet. And I'm, you know, We're not saying that people are still in it. I'm definitely saying that we're not doing anything bad with it, but – what we're what we're saying is that there's always necessarily there should be a little bit of mistrust to make sure that as data grows and there's more data in the pile that it's not used for nefarious purposes.
0: Yeah, it's a good point because you think about like different areas like where you know financial data was some of the data that I didn't upload to the cloud right away. You know, I started with other kinds of backups and and healthcare related data. It just hasn't occurred to me like there's some kind of block between like sharing that more openly. Like it's just more personal. You know what I mean? Like it's not that I wouldn't do it, but it, it requires a sort of conscious change in behavior. You know?
1: And yes, and if you think about it, I think it's also generational too. I would think that my daughter who's 13 is going to be a lot more open You know, to being able to store and analyze things because she's sitting over there in the other room with her iPhone her thing right. uh, and whereas you and i have a certain level of you know i won't say distrust but a certain level of you know coming to a realization of what we want out there and then you have folks like possibly our parents age who are don't are not interested at all they want their stuff left on paper because that's what they know and that's what they're comfortable with
0: yeah my mom's house is filled with paper now that you mentioned that <laughs> see but yep, she's trying to recruit me for a, a reorg project that it's a different kind of big data project involving a lot of manual <laughs> labor lifting and loading boxes. but, oh, uh, God. but no you but no, you make, a, you, make a, you make a really good point though because I think that like you think about folks of your daughter's generation where they're gonna be used to like for example, wearable devices that are constantly relaying information back to the manufacturer, which might share with them interesting aggregated information about what they're doing or whatever, they're going to be used to that idea of these kind of two way communications mediums. You know what I mean? Whereas for me, when I read about like a, a, uh, a flat screen TV, that's like taking pictures of what's going on in my apartment. Like I'm not totally thrilled with that, you know? Um, but, but, but that's going to become like a, that, that idea of that smart machine that's interacting with you. I think that's going to become the norm, you know?
1: Well, and you know, and I think the, uh, the other thing that, and that's a funny part, we read the same thing. That TV, that you know, I'm gonna send you. I'm gonna send back to mother company. We won't mention the name. We're gonna send back to mother company what you've watched and the file names of anything we could find on a USB mounted drive that has AVI or MP3 or MP4 on it, just so okay. we can tailor your recommendations based on what you watch. Like, wait, hold. I didn't really sign up for that.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, yeah.
1: I, it's like, and I said, turn it off, which means, you know, that's not saying that bad programming is never going to happen, <laughs> because that could, you know, obviously the poor programmer who that company threw, you know, to the wolves. It's like, oh, when you check the box, it should have stopped. That was an error, right? That poor programmer is getting fired. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it. It as as generations come and as you know the. Internet of things happens and it's going to be an interesting uh, journey to watch where things really happen what people really want to accept right. and do we get to the point where people accept everything and then something really bad happens and then people dial it all back again and is and if something bad happens can you dial it back and I think that's the that's a big question with all this data with, with you know Facebook and Twitter putting all the billions and billions and billions and billions and terabytes of you know whatever out there. Can you really ever get that back?
0: Yeah, I I graduated college in the in the early '90s. I did an interview with a guy in it from AT&T who told me during the interview he's like, "Wait till you see what happens when all these big databases get combined." You know what I mean? Like, we have these different pieces about you. Wait till you see that. And that day is clearly here, right? And it it's a little scary how much people know about you. So it's interesting to, to weigh that out, and I think that's definitely a factor. But at the same time, it's not stopping companies in different industries from asking the kinds of what ifs you and I were talking about as far as in your industry, the what if is about personal health and predicting uh, impediments to that Uh and trying to improve bottom line is that kind of how it starts? Yeah, do you, is your company pursuing or considering projects like that, kind of based on those what ifs? And then, and then, and then, the, and then, does it shift into a tools conversation in terms of what what what's possible and what kinds of tools could make it happen? And then into a pilot project is that kind of the, the way it goes?
1: Well, I think I think in, in in the healthcare industry, I think there's all of that's going on, and I think it all depends on how you're looking at it. I think that. You know in managed care in general, I think it's because of that you know personal nature of that data there isn't a whole lot of uh what can I do with that you know it's very structured, it's very you know and you know that's one case that I agree with that's what you have to be structured about but I think that when you take that out and you're looking to do more higher level model analysis and health analysis and things like that. I think that's where the business users and analysts in general are seeing and looking and saying, "All right, if I had this type of tool, I could do this type of analysis. How do I get that to work? And will it work in it will it work with my current infrastructure? And if it doesn't, what do I need to do to bring our infrastructure up to snuff?" And I sure. think that you know those buzzword-heavy conferences. Circling back to probably what was one of your original points, <laughs> you know those buzzword-heavy conferences with dropping all those big things in there. They're sticking, and to be honest, in the last ten years, I've been at ten plus years I've been at this company. Uh, it's only been recently, in the last few years, that those buzzword-type conference you know pushes are really starting to drive discussions, and I think it's because they've actually while it's definitely buzzword heavy, I think that it started to actually become a reality. So the reality becomes how do we actually do it? You know, five years ago when you're talking visualization and analysis, you were talking dashboards. You know, but now we've moved beyond, you know, dashboards into data science and full-blown, you know, large data set analysis. You know, that's completely different than we were five years ago.
0: Mm.
1: So the question becomes, you know, I think, and you know, I'm not bashing a dashboard. There's a place for it, uh, and you know, if you got to, you know, you've got to do it right, and you've got to, you know, do it well. Uh, you know, you can't be building things like I, you know, we were talking earlier. Where here's a number, one million. But if I click on that, I want to see a list of a million people. Well, it's not really a dashboard anymore. You're going, you've now moved out of dashboarding into analysis and into, you know, data mining and science and all those fun stuff that people were talking about. So people are starting to want that now. They're seeing that, and the vendors obviously are responding to it because we get conference after conference with these buzzwords and these new products in this space. So the question becomes, to people like me and to BI professionals, how do we actually implement them with our current stack and with our current data set, and if it's not going to work with the current stack and current data set, how do we either uh, make it work and tie them together, or we build out new? And that's a conversation in and of itself (laughs) because
0: because the business case gets tougher and tougher the more new systems and the more new applications and products have to be acquired to make it work (laughs) just a little bit yeah yeah. (laughs) and and you know along those lines i think it's interesting too because you know this this sort of thing around these sort of big monolithic suites right where You know, ERP used to be like big monolithic on-premise suites, huge multi-year projects. And there's just this sense that business is just moving too fast for that now. And you, you certainly see that in the BI space, right, where a lot of the sexiest BI vendors, for lack of a better way of describing them, are what I sometimes call quick and dirty BI, which is a little unfair, but it's that idea that you can go in, the line of business can implement a solution quickly, maybe even with minimal IT involvement, and there you go, right? And we know the names of all those vendors. Um, and uh, so I could repeat a couple of them, but everyone knows who they are. Um, and the point is, like, like now the bigger vendors, I think, uh, in my view, I'd be curious to see if you agree, they, I think they've realized there's a lot of validity to those approaches. And so they're trying to say, yeah, you know, we can offer you some of those tools, but also with a little more overall integration and security and all the things you've already invested in. So you have the case of something like, uh, you know, you and I both work in SAP a lot, so you have, you know, Lemira, which is trying to, in my view, play catch up with uh, products like Tableau. Um, so what do you think, do you think that's the right way to look at it? And, and what would a company like SAP particular need to do to get Lemire to the point where, does it need to compete head-to-head with the best-of-breed features, or does it have a little bit of leeway because of the integration in the back-end and that kind of stuff?
1: Well, I thought, I agree with you 100% in the fact that I think they are playing catch-up to a point, uh, and I would agree as well, and I never really thought of it that way, do they have a little bit of leeway uh, because of the back-end integration that, that should hopefully be coming uh, and if not, they can leverage. Uh, I think that yes, and I say that because if you think about you know the, the, the tableaus of the world, you know they were meant for exactly for that quick and dirty, we're going to grab all of this data, we're going to bring it in, we're going to make vi- cool visualizations and let you analyze it, which is great, but that data still sur- is still whole- held locally or you can connect to something uh, and then you've only got the connection based on what you're connecting through. Uh, but then you've got something like Business Objects, which has a whole back-end robust security system. I think that that's the that's the play for at least for large enterprises that they can make. In that you know we know that vendor X, Y, and Z's AD Windows AD authentication is still manual and needs needs some touch need, needs some finesse and work on. But in this version, we're launching you know security based on your back end you know. Well, Once again, we're talking SAP, your your full BI platform back-end integration, which means that you can use your groups that you've set up already to look at this, and we'll have some logging and other things. Uh, and I think that that quick and dirty, I love it. I think it's great at departmental level, but I know in discussions at enterprises like mine, uh, and not just limited to me and talking to other firms as well, uh, it's you bring in the quick and dirty vendors, and you know the first question out of somebody's mouth is, well, where do you store your logs so we can track who's access what data? Or you know, what is your once again, what's your AD strategy since we have a multi-billion-dollar investment in Microsoft back-end servers, you know, for authentication? You know, do you have SSO or Kerberos off? Uh, that type of stuff. Uh, and that's not to say that the quick and dirty vendors don't have it, but I think the legacy vendors have got a, a chance to differentiate themselves there by saying we have that and it's working, and we are have 75% feature parity, but that other 25% is security. So well, go with us, and we'll get that 25% in a year. Right, right. You know, and I think that there are some large firms that may just say, you know what, all right, it's like you know what, I'll uh, 75% is good enough. For my general departmental – my general wide – so say general. My wide installation base. There might be departments that need that 25%, and they can have it. It's what some firms call tactical versus strategic.
0: Right, right. Derek faded out for a sec there on the audio. I think he was saying oh. 70 – just for a sec – uh, seventy-five, seventy-five <laughs> percent is good enough, is what he was saying there. That if companies can uh, get seventy-five percent, they might be okay with that. Just, just real quick on the feature parity, Derek. Like, like let's say I was shooting for seventy-five percent feature parity with Best of Breed on those that kind of visualization. What, what would do you think would be the keys, like as far as features?
1: Well, uh, can you hear me now a little better? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Okay, so I think the keys. You know, I don't think it truly is the whiz-bang front-end stuff. I think that having most of the same visualizations, uh, I think it's the fact that what kind of support, you know, that 75% brings to connecting to data. You know, what kind of support does it give me to that back-end stuff? But you cannot compete against these quick and dirties without having most of the same types of visualizations and the same type of ease of use. If you give me the same uh, type of, you know, tag cloud, right? And I need to, in, in in one vendor, in the quick and dirty vendor, I need to do 17 clicks. But on the enterprise vendors version, I need to do 25 clicks. 17, 25, it's additional nine step, but I have full end security. That's by 75%. But 17 yeah. to 25 with not a whole lot more of end security, my users are going to say, well, that's a lot more clicks and it's taking more time. What's my r? You know, right. I'm wasting you know x amount of stuff, x amount of time just because you want me to use this as opposed to this. And I think that's where that that tactical versus strategic comes in. There's always going to be divisions and departments who need that extra 25%. So no one's saying you can't give it to them, but at the wide and a wider audience, if you if large enterprise firms can say, well, I can have my security, I can have my back end, and I can have 75% of my features for 75% of my people, all right, I can negotiate a contract there. <laughs>
0: yeah, and the interesting thing too is I think the, the best-to-breed competition in an in, in enterprise is shifting in a significant way because it used to be that it was really tough to catch up with uh, the best-to-breed vendors if you were a large vendor because – they were so far ahead on sort of specialized functionality. But I think you just nailed it with user experience. Now I think there's actually a little more opportunity for com- companies of any size building software to catch up because if you can design a kick-ass user experience for me that that gets a number of things done that I want and my users love using your product, and I know that you're going to update that product four times a year and you have input for me to do that, uh, feedback loops or whatever, I might go with you because... I, th- I think that's the big change, and you may have seen it too, but it's just the user expectations in the enterprise have gone way up, and that's become a real big key to adoption.
1: Well, and I think you're right. I think I, th- I think it's a little bit undersold as well in the fact that you've got uh, the ability to have that feedback loop. And I think enterprise firms are seeing that. They're seeing that agility of the smaller, quick, and dirty firms and saying, if I don't keep up with that, you know what's going to happen is I'm going to end up with the same type of green screen, green bar that I've been pushing for the last 15 years. Yeah. And it's like, eventually the the use the users are going to push corporate IT enough to say, all right, it's like we're holding a, w- this year's funding is for baseline, keep keep up and running. The rest of it is to go to new stuff because we feel we're in the 1990s.
0: Yeah. You yeah. know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we should wrap in a sec, but I just wanted to close out with a, a little bit on your your career and your own evolution. So moving from a reporting expert to more of an architecture, was this a conscious decision? Like what weighed into that? Why are you making this change and and how's it going?
1: Well, it's going pretty well. I think it's uh, – I've been doing a dual role for the last oh uh, maybe three or four years where I've had a you know a small team and my own individual BI application, uh, and been for half the time, and then I've been doing this architecture center of excellence type role, subject matter expert for the other half, and with uh, recent reorgs and purchases and acquisitions of other firms, I looked at the corporate landscape and looked at my team and said, you know what, you guys, you know this, the, you know the architecture COE role has really been what I've been doing for the last. Year or so, and you guys will be a lot safer with a consolidation, as well as can take it to the next level. Uh, working with the business the business has really come to accept, you know, this team uh, with me on the periphery as as the you know as the go-to guys and ladies. So you know what, go for it. I'll hop over to this side. You know, they the roles there for me. So it was a matter of timing, job security, as well as I think seeing where things were going. I think, you know, I see that where I want to be career wise is helping to pick the products, become an expert in the product, and helping people implement the products as opposed to actually building in the products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's where I wanted to be, so it kind of worked out. But I think that a lot of that work, John, I think is actually going to be pushed down to the, in, in over the course of years, into individual developers. As people start to, you know, take things like agile and design thinking, you know, to the next level, your developers are gonna be really and your development leads are really gonna be helping to drive strategy. You know, working together with right. the business to develop that particular application, right? They're saying, you know, this is what we want. If developers aren't savvy enough to catch that and architect for it, it doesn't matter how many architects at you know and centers of excellence you have, if the users are asking for something and it's not getting to that level and only the developers – because the developers didn't pass it on. You're you're back in a conundrum of how do we get from green bar reporting to managed ad hoc reporting? Do you find yourself mentoring younger BI professionals? Yeah, yeah. I do. I I and I really kind of like it because there was somebody in my role before who did that to me. And mm-hmm. for, you know, and it, we became good friends and you know, unfortunately, he Passed away of a, of a brain tumor a few years ago, and I took it upon myself that you know, for someone to do that for me, even when he was sick, the least I could do is help you know the next person who wants to learn. I think that's the crucial thing in any type of mentorship. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, and any type of mentorship, it's not the fact that you're saying I'm going to be your mentor, or coming, men- or having people. You know, Cheryl Sandberg in her book, you know, said, you know, you don't always take somebody who comes up and says, "Can you be my mentor?" It's it's not that type of relationship it's if you find that there's somebody who's got you see something in them and they are open to really kind of wanting to learn then sometimes there's a natural fit and it just goes and I've luckily I have that with you know some of the younger folks you know I say that cuz I don't think I'm that old but you know these guys can code circles around me nowadays you know I'm like yeah. I wish I could do that 15 years ago uh, okay. <laughs> but I think that that's you know it's like you know, Lion King, circle of life, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, as long as you don't chuck Simba off the rock, you know.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that that you you kind of brought me back to early in my career because I remember uh, a couple people, one in particular, you know, who I had felt like an enormous debt to, you know, the kind of thing where, you, you know, you you wonder how you could ever repay someone who, reaches out a hand at a really vulnerable point in your career and pulls you forward right and the, the advice was just very simple which was you pay me back by helping someone else like it's and that part like really starts to click where you're like yeah i'm at the point of my career i'm still trying to learn on the one hand but now i really see a role for myself like it feels really good to be able to pay some of that back
1: well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Is that you have to pay some of it back, but it's also the fact that they're actually doing something with it. Right. It's like you see what you're what you're able to help. You know, why don't you try that? And they actually try it, and it actually works. Right. And then you see six months or a year later that they did it for someone else. It's like, all right, you know what? That was something that it's being put into in perpetuity. You know, circle of life again. I'm helping him. Who's helping him? Who's helping him? That may one day help me. One way right. or the other, and you know, when you're talking in IT, especially with with the circle of development and how you've got, you know, you know, DevOps coming big now with developers also doing the operational roles, you know, yeah. you've got to not be locked down and head down anymore. You've got to be able to think clearly and think broadly, and you know, those are the types of qualities I look for people who, you know, I've worked with or work, you know, worked with me, and the, that's the kind of qualities I look for people that I want to work with or four, and that's that, you know, once again, go back to Disney, circle of life, you know, when you're mentoring someone, I think that that's important to, to keep that in mind, and, you know, I don't think that just saying that I'm a mentor is enough.
0: Right, yeah, that you, you need to see see the impact of it. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I give this talk uh, at shows sometimes around becoming indispensable versus, you know, kind of being someone whose skills are very easily outsourced or, you know, sent off to market uh, to someone cheaper. And this was the first year where I really tried to reframe Indispensable a little bit because what I realized was that people were starting to think that they had to sort of... When I said Indispensable, it's almost like they conjured up the image of like a, a Jimmy the Jimi Hendrix of their you know, or the Ingve Malmsteemer, you know, whoever, like the virtuoso, right? And my point was a little different, and so I started to explain, like, no, indispensable in today's corporate environment, it's not about being some hot shot, hired gun mercenary. It's about being able to enable a team around you to function better and to impart that knowledge upon them so that they can grow, and that's a very different kind of way of thinking about it than I used to think about it, so it's kind of interesting.
1: Well, you say it's interesting, but it's the truth. It's the fact that, yeah, you're going to have rock star programmers and rock star developers, and you need to nurture them. But by also keeping the I don't know if you hear that in the background. Uh, that would yeah, be a I dog. the uh, I think that's that, the, uh, hangout is almost over. Uh, that's the beagle howl. I'm boarding, going to yeah, that, yeah. that that that's that's Mrs. Golasal coming in from uh, a two day <laughs> business trip. Uh, <laughs> oh, but. Yeah, it's that rock starness. Rock star, being a rock star is good. Being a virtuoso is good, but you know what? It's one thing to also be, you know, the conductor. Yeah, absolutely. So you got to conduct your own career, and if you're not the conductor of your own career, you're you're just in the you're just in the back playing triangle.
0: Well, I think that's a great note to end on, <laughs> and I really appreciate your time. And now you can go uh, greet the rest of your family. <laughs> as they return home triumphantly and probably will look to your full attention and not to see you huddling in front of a computer. So, but well, I do that normally, so
1: why would this today be any different than any other day? <laughs> Fair enough, dude. It was a pleasure. As always, my friend. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot.